we hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson. And Jasmine Allnut. And we're here with, I think we've got women worth knowing. Yes, we have some multiple women worth knowing. (laughs) Yes, it's not just a woman worth knowing, but you've got a whole list. Now, Jasmine has been chomping at the bit to move (laughs) on from our medical people. And reluctantly, because every time I go to study, I hear about another one or I see another one. I'm like reluctantly leaving. But, you know, who knows? There might be a revisit in the future. You could sneak it back in, I suppose. Yes. But she wants to get on to the happy subject of the martyrs. Yeah, I just wanted to get into some something that'll be really lighthearted. And <laughs> <laughs> women who have died for Jesus. That's right. And part of this is because I, I think I, I just I love I think a lot of you guys know I, I teach church history. And so there's a lot of these women that are just so obscure from way back in the day, from ancient times that we never really hear about. Now, I will preface this by saying um the one drawback on this is we don't usually have enough documented evidence or That's you right. know stories about these uh, people to do like an entire podcast on one lady. So I do have to kind of group a few of them together, but I just still feel like they're worth knowing and acknowledging. Right. Well, um, in 50 Women, Every Christian Should Know, mm. Michelle Derusha will oh. deal with all of these. And she gives them each a full chapter. Oh, that's So great. if you're curious or want yeah. to know more. However, a lot of these women that um, Jasmine will be touching on today have been mythologized. Mm-hmm. In other words, from their actual testimony, a, a lot of strange things have been um, applied to them. Yeah, they make them legends. And, right, yeah. or saints. Yeah, yeah. And so... We're going to kind of just bring them back to the reality of real women who loved the testimony of Jesus so much mm-hmm. and were willing to live their lives and lay down their lives for that testimony. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because on the way walking here, I was thinking about Romans chapter 12, verse 1, mm-hmm. a living sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about, how, you know, we're to li- offer our lives as living sacrifices, but how often is that actually the whole life? Mm. required of us. Right. Oh, that's a great point. That's a great lead in here to see with these women. And and like Cheryl said too, the reason why I'm not going to tell every single story because some of those stories were not properly, like I said, documented. We don't know what really happened in some of these. And a lot of stories were um, mythologized, like she said, um, to make them more inspirational or something like that for people. But, you know, we want to get down to just the facts of what really happened. And I wanted to actually preface this, which is a little unusual maybe, but, you know, most of the people we've been talking about are from a more recent time periods where we don't have to give tons and tons of background. But since we're going all the way back to the early church era, I just want to explain this a little bit because uh, some of you might be familiar with the fact that in the early church, there was a lot of persecution. But sometimes we don't know why that even happened in the first place. Like, why was the church so hated by specifically the Roman Empire? Well, I think we know quite a bit, though, because so. part of it is they thought they were immoral. Yes. And one of the reasons they thought they were immoral is because they did not like prostitution. And prostitution used to be like a holy mm-hmm. act. Yeah. Um, they didn't sacrifice their children, which was considered a 
holy act in the pagan culture of Rome. So the Christians were considered immoral. They also called them cannibalistic because taking communion and, you know, the bread, and they said they were taking the body of Jesus. Yeah, they didn't understand that when he said, because Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body, this is my blood. People heard that and they're like, ew, what are these Christians doing? Kind of like John chapter six, when he said, unless you drink my blood and eat my body, you have no, you know, and a lot of the disciples then said, you know what? These words are too much for us. It was too offensive. They didn't understand it. Exactly. And there were other things too. The Christians uh, believed in faithfulness and marriage. They weren't promiscuous. Kind of like what you're saying. It wasn't, they didn't worship through sex. That was not, you know, obviously. Um, They they, they practiced chastity and virtue. Um, They didn't participate in uh, the games. They wouldn't attend like gladiator fights and some of these violent things. Um, Not only that, but Christians were rescuing abandoned children. Um, They started the first hospitals and nursing homes. And that wasn't something, believe it or not, the Romans were not into that. A lot of times we glorify Greco-Roman culture and we don't realize that they didn't care about the sanctity of life. If you were were a slave or something, or if you were sick, it was like, ah, just let them die. They didn't care. More than that, they were fatalistic, Mm -hmm. which means that if you got sick, then you had offended one of the gods and you deserved everything that life threw at you. Yeah, so So they kind of had that attitude. Another thing, though, that has really uh, been brought out by N.T. Wright lately in the book, Jesus is King, or is that the name of the book? Something along that title. But he's been bringing out the fact that to say Jesus is Lord, because the Caesars were considered the sons of the gods, Mm -hmm. and they were supposed to be the Lord. So to say that Jesus is Lord, and these Christians refuse to worship the Caesars. Yeah, that was the biggest issue, actually, because all these other things are, you know, unusual practices that made them kind of stand out. But the biggest problem that the Roman Empire had with the Christians had to do with their faith. First of all, because they didn't believe in multiple deities, that they believed in a God that was not uh, represented by an image, they were called atheists, which is really, it sounds funny to us that Christians would be called atheists, but that's what they were considered. And because as part of this, not worshiping the gods meant they wouldn't worship the emperor. That was something that um, had been instituted by the Romans as a kind of political unifying factor, a unifying force in society. If we make everybody in our diverse empire worship the emperor, then we can keep everybody, you know, unified politically, religiously, all of that. And so if you didn't worship the emperor, you were considered a political subversive. And so the Christians were again, considered subversives. Plus, you know, they're also out trying to convert everybody. So that looked even worse. You know, the Christians are out trying to witness to people, bring everyone in the empire to Christ. And it's like, wait a minute, you know, from a Roman secular political perspective, that looked like they were going to try to start an insurrection or something. And it just didn't look good. The early Christians, the very first Christians were Jews. And the yes. Jews were known for their insurrections. Yep. So, so there you they're go. saying, it's wait, like, what this are you has doing? come out of Judaism. But let's get to the kind of the heart of why you want to do the martyrs is because, believe it or not, it was under this persecution that the church actually thrived. Yes, it did. And began mm-hmm. to grow because uh, there's a book by Tom Holland, which I just love, called Dominion. And it's kind of about the unlikely spread of Christianity and what Christianity did for the world. Mm-hmm. And he's not even a Christian. And he said, I'm looking at this and it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's it's remarkable. It has to be yeah. supernatural. It's supernatural. There is no explanation for it, mm-hmm. really. You know, again, when you consider like 
you were saying some of the other insurrections, there were so many, even just like people calling themselves Messiah. That's there were right. tons during Jesus' time. So right. what gave him staying power? We obviously know it was the spirit of I God. I heard that one historian was able to count at least 40 false messiahs after huh. Jesus. Right, right. Which is an amazing uh, amount. You know, Jesus yeah. said many will rise up. And saying, you know, I'm the, I'm Messiah. the Christ. Yes, yeah. totally. It really had application right then. So, you know, yeah. one more thing about this too is the onlookers looking on and seeing these people, because with Rome, your present life was everything. It was, they valued yep. their life yeah. so much. And these Christians did not value their lives, that they mm-hmm. valued Jesus above their own life. And they mm-hmm. talked about a resurrection to come. And that was another thing that was frowned upon is they taught about an afterlife and a resurrected life. And that was not at all part of Romans' yeah. paganism, their their religion at all. Yeah, it's so outside of their paradigm. It was just mm-hmm. completely foreign to them. And so it stood out. And that is why it was so inspirational. There's a Tertullian, who's one of the early church fathers. He actually got saved after witnessing a martyrdom. Yes. And he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You might have heard that quote before. And that's why, I mean, as these people are laying down their lives, it didn't stop the church. It didn't quench the Christian faith. It made it spread more and more. And these women were part of that. You know, let's just go back a little bit to Nero. Nero was looking and for he a scapegoat. Started it all. Yep. <laughs> but he was looking for a scapegoat mm-hmm. to cover his wasteful spending, uh, the bankruptcy of the Roman Empire, to cover some of his mistakes. And also there had been a poor section in Rome mm-hmm. that he wanted to get rid of. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to build a new palace there, which he eventually did. So he set that area. He had Conveniently, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, set, he had that area set on fire. Mm-hmm. And then he blamed the Christians. So they became the scapegoat for all of his problems. And so emperors took note of that. And they found in the Christians also a scapegoat for the political problems. And they found uh, there's this phrase, and I know Jasmine knows this really well, called bread and circus. Yep. And bread and circus was uh, as long as you feed the people and keep them entertained, that way they won't see that everything around them, the economy, civil rights, everything is giving way. It's falling apart and it cannot sustain itself. Sounds kind of familiar. It doesn't end. (laughs) So they started the gladiators or Mm -hmm. these... um, Things in the arena, charioteers that have chariot races. Yeah, it's just basically like entertainment today, Mm -hmm. like what we would do, movies and stuff. Right, but the people became bloodthirsty. Mm -hmm. And so they began to have these, uh, they would bring the Christians into the arena um, to have them publicly murdered. You know what you think about even in the book of Acts when Herod has James, uh, the disciple, put to death how it pleased the people. And he's like, oh, that pleased the people. I'm going to arrest Peter and I'm going to put him to death publicly and I'm going to, you know, just get some more popularity. And we read later that Herod had lost popularity with the people because of some of his misdeeds politically. Mm -hmm. And he was gaining it back now. And, uh, you know, obviously an angel of the Lord in the book of Acts. Free uh, Peter, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. uh, and and slayed Herod. Oh, yeah, too. (laughs) Both of those. Yes. And so... When we're looking at these, we really have some like amazing stories yeah. that we really feel like you need to hear. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, like Cheryl mentioned, starting with Nero in 67 AD and, and the persecution that came out of that, it did. It set a precedent where the other future emperors, if they wanted somebody to blame for bad stuff going on, will just blame it on the Christians. Well, also, so. you've got Nero and then you've got uh, Vespasian. And Vespasian Mm -hmm. actually had been a general that had to fight against the uprising 
in Israel. So he's coming in with some prejudice. And then, of course, Titus, his son, who later will become an emperor, he destroyed uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem in 70 AD. Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've kind of set out the the attitudes and the kind of the reason yes. for it. Yeah, there was re- a lot of reason for this, and a lot of it was political. And so Absolutely. Um, what happened was, again, there were several, there's so many stories, but I just wanted to highlight a few. There were... Um, you know, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, he kind of identifies 10 distinct periods of persecution because every now and then you'd have an emperor over the, it was about 250 years of total persecution of the church. There were be emperors that would be, um, you know, tolerant of the Christians every now and then, but there were 10 really violent periods of persecution. And so a couple of the gals during that time, uh, the first one I want to mention is Blandina. And this is an account that's very well known. This was from an account called The Martyrs of Lyon. It's spelled L-Y-O-N-S, so it looks like lions. But that would be a a Roman outpost in what is now modern-day France. Uh, So this was kind of like a just an isolated region, but there was a a really thriving, healthy church there. And uh, in the year 177, a bunch of these Christians in this area were uh, rounded up to be martyred. This was during the reign of uh, Marcus Aurelius. And so this is considered like the fourth persecution of the church, the fourth period. It was a really horrific time um, for the church. And so what happened was during this time, um, Christians were being attacked and robbed in the streets. And under torture, you'd have servants falsely accusing Christians of incest and cannibalism, kind of like what we were talking about. The the whole incest thing was because Christians called each other brother and sister. And then, you know, if you might remember reading in the um, epistles, sometimes Paul talks about greet one another with a holy kiss, which was, you know, totally pure and sweet. But, you know, not knowing what it was, a lot of the pagans started rumors that, oh, they're having orgies, they're practicing Plus, incest. They, they purposely started these because oh, there totally. was a bounty and they could take the possessions of the Christians. Exactly. And so that was part of it. And I mean, gosh, this is like the Holocaust. Yes. You know? and isn't it important <laughs> to also bring out that uh, most of the information we have on Blandina comes from Eusebius, mm-hmm. who was an early church historian. And he was very conscientious about making sure that all of his information was accurate. I mean, the guy was painstaking in his efforts to get the proper documentation on these things. And so Blandina was one of the believers that was rounded up and imprisoned during this time in Lyon. And the interesting thing about Blandina was she was known to have a lot of physical, like, infirmities. Infirmities. Yeah, that's a good word for it. You know, she just had a really weak constitution, I guess you could say. But she had a really uh, remarkable faith. And so it's interesting because when she got arrested, a lot of her fellow Christians, they're all in prison together, and they were really concerned about Blandina because they're like, man, she is not going to be able to hack it here. If we have to go through any kind of torture or any kinds of pressures, I mean, she's just so physically frail. I don't know if she can do this. She was also a slave. And she was a slave. Yeah. Her owner was also a Christian and they were arrested together. And that's good to note too. You know, slavery uh, in uh, among the believers, and you read about this with Onesimus, you know, and Philemon and stuff like that. It was different. Uh, the Christians viewed it very differently that, you know, if you are in Christ, we're all one, right? There is neither slave nor free. And they really believed that. So there wasn't like this, I'm beating my slave kind of a thing that we might think in of. fact many slaves came to christ because of the master's kindness and their grace and that they were so different as yeah. christians yes absolutely and so that was in fact there were a lot of that would buy slaves just to convert them <laughs> and to bring them to christ I love it. so and again yeah. a standout talk about salt 
Yes. You know, salt and light. The, the Christians looked so distinct. They were so different. Yes. So distinct from the pagan culture. And I think that's important, too, because, I mean, how many people are trying to blend in? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way to really reach the yeah, world. Yeah, relate. Be just yeah. like the world. But it's actually that distinctiveness that draws people to Christ. Like, why do you do what you do? And yeah. that was Blandina. And she gets arrested with her Christian master. Yeah. And, and and so it's it's really neat, though, because here they are all worried about her, you know, again, being physically frail and all of that. Uh, but it's really interesting as they're all in prison. Um, one of the other believers, and I'm sure this happened a lot, uh, one of the young men, he just kind of started to freak out and, and get really anxious and upset. And he was like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'll be able to be faithful to Christ when we go through torture. I mean, he just started to get so overwhelmed. And it was, uh, you know, as the account tells it, basically Blandina was filled with the spirit at this moment. And she became so bold and so strong that she starts encouraging him, inspiring all of the other believers around her. And it was almost just like the Lord gave her this divine grace to last her through this entire ordeal because she started to become the one that everybody was looking to, to encourage them. She calmed this guy down. Hey, it's okay. The Lord is going to be with you and sustain you in this. And so... They get brought before the authorities and Blandina, contrary to what everyone expected, she was just impervious. They, you know, brought her out to be tortured. You know, they try to do, you know, minor tortures at first to just try to get somebody to deny their faith. Yeah, take them on the rack or or whip them or something like that, scourging uh, to try to get somebody to confess. But she just continued to say over and over again, I am a Christian and there is nothing vile done by us. And so eventually the torturers, they kind of just gave up trying to break her. They're like, okay, this isn't working. Put her back in prison. Well, I heard they got exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they like, were wiped out. <laughs> they were like, their energy was spent. Their emotions were spent. But you know, you've got to understand too, these persecutors were also under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Totally. I mean, the Lord doesn't you, let yeah. bad guys get away with. And so many of them got saved. Bad guys. I mean, it yeah. was just, yes, with you're right. bad guys, yeah. And so, um, yeah, so eventually they're just exhausted. They put her back in prison. And then it came time for the games. As Cheryl mentioned before, originally, you know, the games in the arenas and the amphitheaters, which we might be familiar with, were uh, involved chariot races or gladiators fighting wild animals and stuff. But eventually they started to use the Christians for these events and they'd throw them out into the arena as basically food for the wild animals. And so Blandina gets taken out to the arena with some of the other Christians and they suspended her to a post kind of in the crucifix position so that these wild lions can come and attack her. And so she's just there suspended and helpless and she just prays and she's looking up to heaven and praying And it was so interesting because her example, again, of of peace and confidence in God encouraged the others. And the account says, as they saw her, their sister, they contemplated Christ that was crucified for them, that he might persuade those that believe in him that everyone who suffers for Christ will forever enjoy communion with the living God. And so amazingly, you know, not only is she a testimony and an inspiration to everybody else who's watching her. But the animals didn't touch her. It was kind of like Daniel in the lion's den. Sometimes if you look at medieval art, they did a lot of representations of the martyrs. And when you see pictures of Blandina, I know I have one uh, painting in one of my files of, of her uh, with all these lions standing around her like little nice kitties. <laughs> I have a book called Into the Arena. And there's yeah. a picture of that in this cool. book. Cool. Cool. Yeah, exactly. I think my book's from like 1910. <laughs> oh, well, there there you go. <laughs> so don't go out there and try to you, find yeah, it. Yeah, good luck with that, folks. I mean, maybe... 
maybe for 50 bucks on some website. Right, or so, more. Yeah. Right. Do you know that so, amphitheater where she was taken and she was hung is still there in France? Oh, how cool. In wow. And Wow. Mm-hmm. Man, that'd be a good bucket list thing to go see. So uh, she gets sent back in to be uh, tortured and to be executed in the arena a second time because they had to pull her back out since the animals weren't doing anything. It was like, okay, this is embarrassing. So they pull her out. They bring her back into the arena again at a later time. And uh, one historian says that she went to the arena with joy and exultation at the issue as if she was invited to a marriage feast and not to be cast before the wild beasts. And so they they scourged her. Once again, she was exposed to wild animals. They actually ended up roasting her in an iron chair and threw her before an angry bull. And then she finally died. But she is such a picture of God using, I mean, gosh, we read in Corinthians, the foolish and the weak to confound the wise. I mean, this confounded everyone, that this was the least. She was the least among them and the one that was the weakest but she was the one who actually lived the longest. And she became the inspiration and example to the others. In fact, the account says that she was the last of the martyrs of Lyon and she sent them on before her as victors to the great king. You know, I I had read in that book that I told you, 50 Women by Michelle de la Rouge, Mm -hmm. but she was saying that actually it was one of the soldiers took pity on her Mm -hmm. after the bull had thrown her and her death was actually... Uh, she died not because of the bull, but because she was killed with a dagger mm-hmm. in order to spare her any more suffering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we have to think, too, that one moment you're suffering, you're going through the worst torture that earth can get. And the next minute you're in the presence of the Lord, absolutely whole, more beautiful than you've ever been. And you're hearing mm-hmm. the voice of the the Jesus that mm-hmm. you've given everything for saying, well, well done, done. Yes. my good and faithful servant. Mm -hmm. And you're hearing no doubt the praise of angels. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, when we're talking about martyrs, it's really hard to understand this death and these sacrifices, this side of heaven. Yep. And I think that we get kind of a, uh, what do you want to say? Like a lopsided view Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we're only seeing one half. We're earthly. Yes. We're earthly. Yes. But Paul said this light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far greater weight of glory where we look not on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Mm -hmm. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Mm -hmm. And when we think of Blandina, we think of the eternity and the glory. I mean, someday we're going to see her. We're going to go, who is that glorious creature? She's so beautiful. (laughs) Why is she right next to Jesus? Why is she so close to Jesus? (laughs) You know, because Mm -hmm. when James and John were asking, you know, and they got their mother to ask, can we sit on your right and left? He said, that's not for you. That's for my father in heaven to choose who will be there. And I think that it's going to be, you know, especially a woman slave. I mean, talk about the lowest rung of society. Yeah, that no one would expect anything out of. Yep, Mm -hmm. exactly. Nobody would expect anything and nobody would be merciful to somebody like that. She had already gotten the worst, even living. Um, she would have been so ill-treated. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen in that day, they couldn't torture you like this. They had to behead you. It was only the slaves and the non-Roman citizens that were actually allowed to go into the arena and face the beast. Yeah. And so a lot of it had to do, first, the fact that she was a woman. Yep, I don't even a think slave. a woman could be a, a citizen of Rome. Right. Yeah, it depends on who you were born into. But that's yes. right. So, so, yeah, I mean, that's a good point, too. 
So that is Blandina. And then we have uh, Perpetua. And this is a okay, more- Okay, fa- I've heard of her as Perpetua. I Which know. One? It's like Habakkuk Habakkuk. It's one of those. <laughs> Which one? Let's call the so whole thing off. She, yeah, really. And hers is actually the best documented martyrdom account we have, uh, along with another guy named Polycarp. He was the Bishop of Smyrna. Those two accounts are kind of like the prized possessions of the early church. Um, because they are the most, you know, authenticated, uh, partially even autobiographical, especially Perpetua. Uh, Hers is the only autobiographical account that we have uh, from a woman. Uh, She's, it's actually the earliest document written by a Christian woman. So very significant. And she lived in Carthage, North Africa during the reign of Septimus Severus. And he uh, actually enacted the first law against Christianity in the year 202 and instigated the fifth persecution of the church. Um, So she was a young, a 22-year-old mother uh, with a baby boy at the time of her arrest in the year 203. And she gives us a detailed account of her imprisonment all the way up to the point of her death. And then after that, other eyewitnesses kind of filled in those details. And so it's all legit. This is very interesting because how many women are literate in those days? She was a a upper class. So we have a slave on one end with Blandina and Perpetua was actually an educated woman, a little more upper class. Um, So when she was originally arrested, her uh, father, and you get from the account that she and her dad were really close. And so this was a very difficult situation. Her dad was not a Christian, and he uh, kept coming in and trying to persuade her to deny her faith. And she records a conversation she had with him. uh, And she said, Father, do you see this vessel lying here? He said, I see it. And I said to him, can it be called by any other name than its own? And he said, no. Well, nor can I call myself by anything else than what I am a Christian. So she's trying to explain to him, this is my identity. It's who I am. And so she just continued to try to explain to him and help him to see and to understand. Uh, And she stuck to this confession, even though he kept trying over and over again to convince her to deny Christ. So when she was originally sent to prison, she was separated from her baby and she was really distressed about this. Uh, But they actually brought the baby into the prison for a while. When they were going to be in holding for a little bit, they figured, well, we'll bring the baby in so she can nurse it and that sort of a thing. And from that time on, she said, my prison suddenly became a palace so that I preferred to being there to being anywhere, which is crazy. And one biographer later wrote this, and I thought, well, this is just a good life lesson for us. (laughs) Perpetua demonstrated how for a believer, external conditions in the final analysis are not as important as our attitude towards them. And I think, wow, isn't that the truth? You know what I mean? To have a heavenly perspective, kind of like what Charles was just mentioning, you know, having that divine outlook. And so instead of seeing from the earthly realm, it's just so important to get our eyes off of, you know, those earthly things onto the way God sees these things. And so while she's in prison, she has a vision after which she said, uh, I told my, my brother, her Christian brother, and we understood that our passion was imminent and we ceased to have any more hope in this world. And you'd see this happen a lot. You actually see this in Polycarp's account where often it was almost like the Lord would give these martyrs a, a vision of what was coming to kind of prepare them spiritually because he gave them the grace to walk through this. Okay, and I want to say this too, because you didn't mention this earlier, but she was not arrested alone. No, no, there was a group. Yeah, there was a group. There was a group. And there's something about being in a group that, and they were encouraging each other Mm -hmm. too in the Lord, which is, I think, very significant. Totally, totally. They probably, the Romans should have probably just isolated them if they would have known. (laughs) Right, exactly. So uh, soon after this, actually, it's funny you said that because I have right here, Perpetua and the other believers were brought forward for questioning and they professed their faith in Christ. They all, again, encouraged by one another, were able to boldly confess their 
faith. And as uh, Perpetua is getting up there and it's her turn to confess, her father pulls her aside, gets on his knees and begs her to sacrifice to the emperor and give up her faith for the sake of her family and her baby. Like, don't you care about us? And you got to understand, this was very undignified for him to do. Remember, this is an upper class family and he's a dignified Roman citizen. And so for him to get on his knees before his daughter was kind of like, whoa, that was kind of scandalous. Nobody did that. But that's how desperate he was. And, you know, even uh, Hilarionis, the Roman official, he joined with Perpetua's dad in trying to encourage her like, yeah, look what you're doing to your dad. You're causing him to humiliate himself. How could you do this to your family? Just, you know, just deny your faith. Why are you holding on to this? And so her father just persisted and persisted. But it's interesting, eventually, Hilarionis realized this wasn't going to work. So he started beating the dad, which you would have thought that might have maybe broken Perpetua's heart or her resolve, I guess you could say. Um, and yet in the midst of all that, somehow she was able to stand fast, but it was so hard. I mean, she's dealing with so much pressure on all sides before even, you know, being martyred. You know, you see, you think of all the family pressure these people were under. So after the Christians were taken back to prison, following their confession, Perpetua's slave, Felicitas, there's another slave gal who was with her, gave birth to a daughter. And both of the women's babies were then given to uh, into the care of family members. And Perpetua's account kind of continues on up until the day before the games, in which they were going to be sent to the arena for the wild beasts to attack. And so from there, this is when eyewitnesses picked up the narrative. Some people even think the church father Tertullian uh, finished this account because he was from Carthage, from North Africa. So the day of the event, they get marched out into the amphitheater, men first, and then Perpetua and Felicitas go out last. And the eyewitnesses there said that they went joyfully as though they were on their way to heaven which they were. And they even, as they went by the Roman judge, Hilarionis, uh, they called out and said to him, you are our judge, but God is yours. I mean, whoa. Like, I mean, up until the end, they were just bold and even really trying to get him to wake up. Like, you know, it's it's real. Eternity is real. And so um, Perpetua and Felicitas, they ended up being stripped, uh, which the crowd actually did not appreciate. But, you know, again, trying to demean these women. Then they put them in um, tunics and threw them out before a mad heifer to be like basically gored to death. And when they didn't die, they were sent out of the arena temporarily. And it's interesting because Perpetua had been so, um, I guess, basically in the spirit, she didn't even realize that she was under attack. It was like the grace of God that came over her to sustain her through this. So eventually, and you'd mentioned this with Blandina, you know, sometimes they would just send the gladiators out in the end. If somebody wasn't dying, uh, they just send the gladiators out to execute the surviving Christians. And that was what happened with Perpetua. The, but it's interesting because the gladiator who came to execute her was so young that he didn't know what he was doing. And so Perpetua actually had to guide the blade to her throat, which is gnarly. Well, actually, he kept doing it wrong. Yes. And it's just like, oh, can I just help you here? Which is... Yes. <laughs> I, you're reading uh, that in this story where he kept hitting her over and over again, but he was doing the blunt side instead of... Yeah, he was just the way. new to the job. Yes. Uh, yeah, call. So Tertullian said this, and I love the way he said this. He said, perhaps so great a woman could not have been killed had she herself not been willing. Interestingly, Augustine later noted that the names of these two women, they were the only two women in this particular group of Christians, Perpetua and Felicitas. Those are two Latin names, and they uh, translated together mean everlasting happiness. And so what a cool symbol of what God could perpetual do. Perpetual happiness. Perpetual yeah. happiness. Or perpetual felicity. Exactly. So there are so many other accounts and so many other stories. Um, you know, there's Agape, Keone, Irene, Agnes, 
Agatha, so many of these wonderful accounts. But I just wanted to mention one thing that my my mom wrote, just random text to me the other day. She was just kind of going off on martyrs. And I thought it's just a cool word for us today as we just wrap this up. She said, uh, you know, these martyrs, I don't, I don't even know how she started talking about this. <laughs> but she said, uh, they had such sacrificial all-out devotion and love. Not martyred to earn a place in heaven, but martyred because they found themselves threatened with recanting their faith and love for Jesus and denying his existence. He was their life and breath, and they could not deny him any more than they could say the sky was not blue. They had something genuine they would lay their lives down for. They found God. They knew him through Jesus, and by his spirit found he was with them so tangibly they could not recant. I think their lives reflect real meaning of sufficient grace when needed. We don't know what we would do if we were faced with what they faced, but we have a hope that his spirit would give us the grace to stand. Today, people are lost and looking for something to live for. We need their message and example today because they stood for truth as Jesus stood before his condemners. They just stood with Christ indwelling. And that's how he wanted the world to see his kids, full of faith and brave, because they were spirit-filled, not raging, but resting. And what a word for us today, you know, to just stand, stand in who God has made you. We don't have to rage against the machine, resting in who God has made us and, and letting that be our testimony to the watching world, uh, just as these martyrs exemplified. So I read that after Perpetua, though, or Perpetua, that her martyrdom actually turned the public against these arena sports. Yep. And it started she, to really, it, yeah. She was, because of her nobleness mm -hmm. and her nobility in dying, the people weren't satisfied. That bloodthirsty, yeah. that raging, it just turned. And the people began to be repulsed by these games and they started mm -hmm. losing money. And eventually she was the beginning of these games being shut down. Well, you said and they're the, under, yeah, mm -hmm. they're under conviction. Right. You know, there's the conviction of the Holy Spirit but is there. But the crowd did not cheer when she died. And it was one of the first times that the crowd was not for mm, or in this. Pleased. And then one other thing is that her journals were read by the church for years and yes, years and years. Yes, 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 as Polycarp's Okay, we too. are so out of we time. We really are, but I had I to get that out there. I wanted her to just do one of these a uh, <laughs> session, but no. So anyway, <laughs> we're so glad we could bring you these two early church women worth knowing. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.